all sound poetry is lacking in total commercial value. You can't sell this stuff. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Clyde here, and today we're here for the love of of the good old archives uh, of of the avant garde. We're going to be talking about an online archive of the avant garde that's existed now for twenty five years called UbuWeb. And we're going to talk to uh, the founder and real principal curator of this online archive, Kenneth Goldsmith, who's a poet, a critic. Uh, he teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has, for over the course of a generation, essentially been accumulating artifacts, audio, video, text of the avant-garde and sharing it online. And that sounds simple, but there's so yeah. much more to this story. And, and, and we're, we're talking to him on the occasion on the publication of his book, which is a memoir uh, of creating UbuWeb and maintaining UbuWeb. And it's full of, of wonderful stories and anecdotes as well as inspiration and, and, and to some extent instruction, I think. I think. Uh, for doing the same thing, his book is called Duchamp is My Lawyer, The Polemics, Pragmatics, and Poetics of UbuWeb. And what people should know about UbuWeb is it's it's the kind of videos or uh, audio that you find easily if you have access to a world class library, uh, a big one because it's the kind of strange artworks that are uh, not going to be checked out on a regular or basis. things that might have been traded back and forth by VHS exactly. twenty five years ago, or or people that yeah people that may have had a uh, a yearning to see strange videos with their friends, and so yeah, these VHS tapes might have been copied and shared so that you could see uh, wild artworks or or strange uh, non not commercially viable pieces of video that are still uh, valuable and fun to watch. Uh, but now it's all it's all there on UbuWeb, a place where you can still see these things. And it's tied together with with video, with text, but also sound and radio play play a real role here in 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 the UbuWeb story. So we think this is uh, if you've enjoyed any of our interviews about archives or art and sound art, I mean, this is definitely for you. Yeah, handcrafted websites that stand the test of time are certainly uh, one of. One of the fun things we're excited to share today on today's episode with our interview with Kenneth Goldsmith. We're really thrilled to welcome to the show Kenneth Goldsmith. He's the American poet and, and critic and the founding editor of UbuWeb, along uh, with being the senior editor of Penn Sound at the University of Pennsylvania, where, where he also teaches. And he's the author of, of a memoir of sorts of UbuWeb, uh, recently published, called Duchamp is My Lawyer, The Polemics, Pragmatics, and Poetics of UbuWeb. Uh, Kenneth, uh, welcome to Radio Survivor. Thanks for taking some time to speak with us. Okay, Hi. For folks who, who haven't heard of UbuWeb, and, and I hope that this interview causes them to, uh, to correct that uh, oversight and immediately plunge in, can you describe what is UbuWeb? Well, it's a website. Uh, a website, remember those? Uh, it's an independent website, remember those? Uh, you know, it's a website written in HTML 1.0, remember those? Uh, in other words, it's been around for 25 years. It's the largest free archive for avant-garde materials on the Internet. Uh, it holds, I don't know how many cultural artifacts, in the hundreds of thousands, and it's been expanding uh, exponentially uh, every day. Uh, uh, e even, even last night it expanded further. So it's, it's a 25-year work in progress. And by avant-garde, 
artifacts. Give us a sense for, for what that means, what, what you have there on the website. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it starts with pretty much the old school avant-garde, the old white male European tradition is the basis of our collection from, you know, Marcel Duchamp to Andy Warhol and folks like that. Of course, uh, that that's not good enough and uh, we can't stop there. So we've expanded it. Uh, largely to non-Western forms, uh, forms uh, focusing on uh, artists of color. Believe me, there's there's always been uh, a, a rainbow variety of uh, sexual uh, points of view exposed. So uh, we started with something pretty straight, and I think we tried to bend it uh, over the last 25 years hey. into being more contemporary. Hey, Kenneth, I wonder if, it, if I can challenge you to do something that is probably not fair, but it will be fun. Um, can you define avant-garde art for people that, that may not have been exposed to the concept? Yeah, sure. I mean, all, uh, you know, ever since uh, visual art stopped trying to replicate the world around it, you know, and that ended with the invention of the camera, art had to find a new way of being in the world. If it's uh, uh, mimesis was no longer its, uh, uh, you know, main function, then there were a lot of artists wondering, well, what is the function of art? So it began to push out into abstraction. I mean, you could even go back to somebody like Monet. Uh, he sees the world. He says, uh, the camera made uh, the landscape clear. I'm going to make it blurry. That's an avant-garde move. Of course, no, not too many people think of Monet today as being avant-garde, but absolutely um, the impulse to take art in a new direction uh, was an avant-garde impulse. So you can kind of track every art movement in the 20th century as having an element of the avant-garde in it. As a matter of fact, that was the game in the 20th century, was leapfrogging the guys who uh, came before you to try to make it weirder and try to make it more extreme until you get to something like conceptual art where it vanishes completely um, and and then it sort of then it has to rebuild itself again and again. So, you know, I mean, I would say, you know, even Picasso, you know, everybody, oh, Picasso, Picasso. So, you know, they're worth millions of dollars. But the impulse behind Cubism and all of Picasso's stylistic flip flops over the years, you know, we're all part of the avant garde impulse. So, in other words, it's a pretty uh, large and I think generous genre. And what drove you to want to? compile these works on the internet in, in 1996 in a world, you know, before uh, we had a term called social media before even a MySpace, never mind Facebook uh, or a YouTube for that matter. Uh, what, what drove you to want to compile these on, on a website? Well, um, I was, and I guess I sort of still am. Uh, I was trained as a visual artist and uh, my subject matter uh, when I was younger, was books. You know, I would make these big books out of wood and I would carve words into them. And um, what ended up happening was uh, the sculptures were beautiful, but I was begin beginning to resent the time that it took to carve the wood. And I was just interested in the words. And hmm. I got really, really interested in the words, you know, in a material way, kind of a plastic way, not really a, ma a way that was so much about meaning, but is about the way that the words actually looked. Um, and at this point, I had these collectors that were down in Florida, and uh, they collected uh, concrete poetry. And I'd never really heard of concrete poetry. I mean, what is that? And it turns out that that's actually a way uh, that was formed in the mid-century 
of working with poetry, not by the meaning as much as by the arrangement of words on a page, you know? And I was like, wow, this is sort of exactly what I'm interested in. And I got really hooked on this very forgotten genre called concrete poetry. And I began collecting all these books of this stuff. And there's a lot of it, but no, you know, you could go to a used bookstore and pick up uh, a book of concrete poetry for two bucks or something like that. And I got this giant collection. And when I first saw the graphical web in 1995, I noticed the interlaced GIF. I, you, do you remember those? Yeah. Interlaced yeah, GIFs? Yes. Yeah. So it's a type of, of, of graphic. I mean, it's a graphic file. People know of like animated GIFs now, I guess. But but where um, in order to, I guess, to save memory, uh, they alternating lines of it would fill in, right? Yeah, yeah, like a Venetian blind or something like that. Yeah, and there were a lot of sequential uh, concrete poems, poems that like kind of filled themselves in in that way, but they would go across pages. And they were kind of like primitive animations. And I was like, oh, my God, this is all starting to make sense somehow. So I, you know, got and I was really excited by the uh, uh, graphical web because I had been on Lynx and Unix systems before that. Um, so I began scanning some of these concrete poems and putting them up as interlaced GIFs. And wow, they started to kind of come to life. And also being backlit on the screen gave concrete poetry a new life. I mean, it was kind of dead on the page. Believe me, in the early 90s, the stuff that was produced in the 50s and 60s looked a little bit dead. But when backlit by the screen, they started to really jump. And then they kind of moved as they were kind of interlacing. So I thought, wow, this medium was waiting for a revival of concrete poetry, and I am going to be the man uh, (laughs) to build that collection. So I guess I built one of the first... uh, uh, archives of concrete poetry. I just scanned stuff, put it up. I sent an email out to some friends, you know, my two friends that might be interested in concrete poetry. And I said, hey, check this stuff out. And they said, hey, that's pretty cool. That looks pretty good. And they sent the email out to a few other friends. And before I knew it, I had a um, a, a group of concrete poetry fans hmm. uh, uh, surrounding me. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of the site back in, back in 1996. And critically... You did this, I, I, I'm to understand, especially from reading your book, without checking in with anyone first, right? <laughs> well, nobody checked in with anybody first. I mean, it was the web. You just put it there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that, that became a policy. We still don't check in with anybody. There's hundreds of thousands of things that are unchecked in, so well, to speak. And that's interesting um, because, you know, I, too, was on the web, you know, in 1996 and a little before that. And... You know, the metaphor of Wild West, I think, gets overused uh, in a lot of ways. And, of course, uh, I think is due for some historical revisionism. But nevertheless, there was a sense that people – that was the way you did things on the Internet in 1996. You just you just did it. You didn't sort that's, of take no, another thought. <laughs> hold on. That's the way we still do things on the Internet. <laughs> don't believe don't believe them. They were trying to control you. I well, mean, right. Well, well tell, know, me, tell me. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that ethos. I've written a whole book about that. Basically, the book is called Duchamp is My Lawyer. Uh, And as you said, and basically the idea of Duchamp, his permission is, he says, I can take anything in the world and I can call it art, right? He took a urinal and he said, that's a a sculpture. And, uh, you know, that's a beautiful permission that permits anything uh, to be something special. The most boring thing in the world now can be elevated and, and become something special. It's an incredible permission the world becomes a very rich place when everything is valued 
Okay. And so the notion um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that nothing can be excluded um, was something that really propelled the site, a kind of a Duchampian idea. Uh, I, I'm just going to select it and I'm going to put it up there and I'm going to call it, uh, call it an important piece of art. Now, the way that this all works is that there's no money exchanged, okay? First of all, let me just start by saying that avant-garde art in general is pretty valueless. It's historically priceless, economically worthless. I mean, particularly the stuff that we deal in, which is like abstract films and sound poetry. I mean, you could sell mm-hmm. this stuff if you wanted to. Okay, so that's the first thing to know is that, is that I don't take money. I never touched money in 25 years. Uh, I don't pay anybody. I don't ask permission. <laughs> I don't ask for grants. If somebody wanted to buy the site tomorrow for a million dollars, I'd say, you're out of luck. We don't do money here. And that's the beauty of it. It's managed to actually work really well. Everybody is really comfortable with sharing things when there's no economic incentive involved. And that's that's an interesting point because it seems to me that if I if I look at this arc that's happened in in the intervening time, uh, part of the growth of the internet is this constant drive to find what is that economic incentive and 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 to and to create economic value, if you will, out of out of just everything else, right? We call it monetization is, is, is the word, right, that gets used uh, within any in, in, internet industry. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it, it's a matter of creating something, but other times it's, a, it's this very kind of regressive uh, kind of action, right? It's, it's uh, the RIAA uh, trolling, um, you know, music sharing sites to sue, you know, grandmothers for the, for the MP3s that, that, that their grandchild downloaded and, and, and things like this. And, and, and so when I, you know, say sort of that's a change since 1996, it's because we have some of these examples of, you know, copyright industries, uh, you know, movie studios, record labels, et cetera, book uh, publishers as well, you know, going out and, and sort of patrolling for unpermissioned uses of, of their intellectual property and looking, you know, either to, to, to tamp it down or, or achieve rents effectively, right? Um, how, and, and you say, you know, and, and, and it, sometimes it seems to be, it doesn't matter whether the, the person who has shared it is deriving any, any, any actual economic gains. Um, so I wonder how you've managed to, to sort of uh, keep going given this background and these, these actual things happening, uh, you know, to, to essentially average people. Yeah. Um, well, one of the first things uh, that we did was we removed ourselves from Google. Uh, so they can't ah. find us, which is, which is great. Uh, you know, people write books about how to get your Google ranking higher I, my, my, I want to get off Google entirely. Uh, and then once you're off Google, you're kind of free to do whatever you want. They can't find you. You know, they're not that clever. And how do you do that? I mean, I know, I, you know, it sounds simple enough, but I'm not sure a lot of people realize that it's, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you own a domain, <clears throat> you can go into, I guess, it used to be called Web Administrator Tools on Google. I think they changed the name. But you can go in and you can remove your site. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's it. It's simple. You know, nobody tells you this. 
you know, nobody tells you a lot of things. And that's part of like the reason I wrote this book is to tell people that sort of things are still possible. Things that, you know, you thought were foreclosed upon years ago actually can still be done today in the same way that they were done 25 years ago. And it's not, you know, I mean, Facebook and, you know, Instagram or whatever, uh, you know, want, want you to think that that, that 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 really is the Internet and you can't do anything independently. But that's just not true. Uh, if you want to build a website like you did in 1996, you can, you can build the website in the same way and you'll be left alone. So the notion that the Internet has become just one thing is reductive and, uh, and incorrect. And how does a poet uh, decide to start building a website? And, you, you know, you, up, up front you said you use HTML 1.0, right? So this is the code that's behind every website at, at some point. And, and version 1, you know, is simple – if people have, you know, for folks who weren't around on the internet in 1996, you know, the websites were, were more simple then. Uh, they were not dynamic, meaning that everyone saw the same website pretty much. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't customized to you. There was no database in the background. Um, so, so what caused you to, and I, you, you learned HTML, right, in order to do this? Although, frankly, I mean, it, it wasn't super hard to learn. Um, you know, what, what what made you suddenly say, take these to take the tools in your own hands and to run with this what 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 was that spark yeah well you know i was a visual artist in the 80s in new york and i was doing pretty good you know i was selling all this stuff and uh you know had gallery representations and all that stuff i mean i was making a pretty decent living at that but the damn thing i got i got involved in language what a mistake (laughs) and uh I, I fell in love with poetry, concrete poetry and all re- non remunerative things. So I found myself basically um, around 1990 out of work and um, I had to kind of retrain. And I, I heard about this thing called the Internet, you know, so I kind of I think I went and I took a class on on some HTML, which we were writing in DOS at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, I just learned it. And, and then through the 90s, I had a day job. Uh, because poets make no money uh, whatsoever. You can, no, no poet lives on their poetry. Maybe Rupi Kaur is maybe the, the only person in the world, but that's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, so I took a day job in, in, the, in the dot-com bubble from uh, the early 90s until the thing crashed in 2000. And basically, I got to sit uh, at a desk all day uh, doing nothing. I was paid very well to do nothing because this, these jobs are just such a joke. Uh, nobody was watching me, and I had a fast internet connection. So I spent ten years strapped to a desk building UbuWeb. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was great. I got paid to build UbuWeb. The only time uh, I was ever paid for UbuWeb. You know, so uh, that's kind of the way the way the site uh, developed at that. You know, in the in the '90s. You know, I think that is the that is the story behind so many interesting, great kind of works either of art or, or, or great, you know, compilations like, like UbuWeb, you know, that people have these moments where, you know, they have the desk job that gives them the time to look busy and they can work on a zine, they can work on poetry, they can work on a novel or, or, you know, uh, which was, or as you had the privilege of, of having a fast internet connection, right? I think uh, certainly in the nineties, fast university connections, um, helped a lot of great internet things get off the ground. I know I was working at a university at the time. So, and, and again, had much faster internet at work than I did at home, which caused me often to stay at work very late so that I could take advantage. Exactly. Exactly. I, I was there on the weekends. <laughs> they hadn't a clue. It was, it was funny. Uh, yeah. You know, so I think that just being a poet and having no money 
made me have to fill my time somehow. And I figured, well, you know, this is a good use of it. Kenneth Goldsmith, you're, yeah, no, you're, uh, Kenneth Goldsmith, you're on Radio Survivor today talking about your website, Ubu Web, which is a, uh, you know, an archive of avant-garde art. You started off by uploading images of concrete poetry to the website. At what point did you start to develop it into like a more of a multimedia archive? Uh, when did you switch to sound and then tell us about uh, the transition to video? Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, sound came in. It was real audio. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We've talked quite a okay. bit about real audio recently on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I, I, I started ripping LPs to real audio. You know, mm-hmm. I took I got a big collection. Now, when I was buying uh, the, the concrete poetry books, they had a, a, a sound genre, a parallel genre that was done in sound called sound poetry. In other words, where the language wasn't was spoken and intoned, but not in a typical way of poetry where, you know, a Shakespeare where, you know, you're trying to get emotions across and stuff like that. It was really about the sounds of words. It was, you know, abstract, very abstract, like letter sounds and stuff like that. So it was, you know, a lot of concrete poets were also sound poets. I figured, well, we got real audio. We should put up some sound poetry. And so I spent an enormous amount of time ripping LPs and CDs at that time uh, to real audio files. And we had then a little section called sound poetry. And we had a little section called concrete poetry. Can you, can you tell us about what? one? Can you tell us about oh. one album in particular? Because I'm I love the idea of there being something that's especially uh, like we said <laughs> earlier, like non not, you know, very uh, lacking in total commercial value. <laughs> All sound poetry having... is lacking in total commercial value. <laughs> you can't sell this stuff. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of uh, about a sound poetry record that, that, that pushed the genre away from concrete poetry and sound poetry and into the avant-garde. And this is a good example. Uh, uh, so we, we love John Cage right? The modernist composer, the avant-garde modernist composer. His famous piece was four minutes and 33 seconds, which is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And the idea again behind that piece is that you don't really have to play anything, but if you're just quiet and you listen to the sounds around you, you'll find that there's plenty of uh, oral, A-U-R-A-L variety in our uh, day-to-day listening experiences, okay? So we love John Cage, and John Cage made some really good concrete poetry, and he did these really weird readings of his pieces that, to my ear, sounded like sound poetry. So we took those readings, I burned them from some CD, and he was making weird noises with his mouth around words and James Joyce and stuff like that. And, I, and that was sort of one of the founding documents of our sound poetry section. But then... Uh, there were also these other moments in which John Cage would do those weird sound poetry readings accompanied by an orchestra, you know, <laughs> a classical orchestra. And I thought, well, this really isn't sound poetry and this really isn't orchestral avant-garde work, you know, like Schoenberg or something like that. What the heck is this thing, you know? And I thought, oh, my God, I guess, I, I guess it's, every, you know, the, these, the naming things became too small. Well, why don't we just call this avant-garde, right? Uh, that makes sense. And so within the avant-garde, then you could have these various sections of sound, of, of, of visual, of film, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the turning point upon which the archive changed from a sound and concrete poetry site into a site of avant-garde in general. I mean, you know, these these... These things are really slippery. You can't really say this is avant-garde and that's not. This is, I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So 
by building a, a, a very giant uh, archive of the avant-garde I, and, and dispensing basically with, with, with genres of avant-garde, all sorts of weird stuff started to flow in uh, into, into the archive that was typically outside uh, the prospectus of the classical avant-garde. And in that way, I kind of like to think that uh, we, the uh, UberWeb is a very impure avant-garde. You've never seen an avant-garde quite like this. And I like the impurity because I think one of the problems with the avant-garde was its rigidity, its purity. I mean, it was, it was, it was really, um, you know, it was patriarchal. It was colonialist. I mean, all those kind of uh, uh, references that you have around avant-garde as a male. I mean, it was, it was militaristic, all of that stuff. You could soften it and, in a sense, queer it by by adding things that you know normally weren't there, but still somehow were in dialogue uh, uh, with with the avant garde. Mm-hmm. And you you say it kind of in a passive voice that things filtered in, but I mean you're not passive about it, are you? <laughs> this, I mean, this is well, curated. I'm not passive. Right? No, yeah. I'm not passive, but I'm open. Uh huh. And I think like I'm not a historian, so it's just like folk. This is folk archiving. You see, I have this theory the, uh, uh, that that we're all uh, that folk archiving has become a folk practice. Mm-hmm. We're all, you know, we're all archivists now. If you look at what's in your download folder or uh, you know on your hard drive of MP3s, I mean, you actually have archived and curated an incredible collection of enormous depth, almost accidentally. You see, and everyone's doing this, whether it's building Spotify playlists or or adding adding things to your library and apple music we're all uh, have so many cultural artifacts uh, at our fingertips that the making sense of those puts us all in the position of being a curator um, now you know curatorial practices always came from above but in a sense now everybody uh doing this it's come it's become a common folk practice it's very unconscious uh, you know, like like quilting or something like that, you know, uh, traditional folk art. So I actually think we're all archivists now. Yeah, we actually we had a guest on um, uh, about, you know, uh, about six months ago who talked about that transition where where now now that we kind of keep because of our computers and because of our phones, each individual really does keep a personal archive of their lives. That's uh that was un- unthinkable in the 1960s, which really still is, you know, within the memory of many living human beings. It's a well, it's except, a, it's a great trend. Ex- except, 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 uh, the, you know, I, I mentioned in my book uh, the one instance of Andy Warhol and Warhol um, was a hoarder. He was yeah. a world class hoarder. <laughs> the guy just bought everything. And he had this beautiful townhouse on the Upper East Side of New York and it was crammed to the gills with you know, Rolexes and ceramics and, and Navajo blankets. And he'd shove them into these rooms and he'd shut the door and he'd never open them again. He'd just fill the room and he'd go upstairs and fill the next room, et cetera, right. et cetera. My, my favorite Warhol hoarder fact is that he never threw away a piece of mail. Well, and, and this is it. So at some point, um, I believe it was in, uh, I have it in the book, the actual date. I think it was sometime in the early 70s. He decided to keep uh, always next to his desk an open box, like yeah. a cardboard box. And into that box, he would just throw everything. 
So uh, pieces of mail would come in. He wouldn't even open them. He'd just throw them into the box. Um, you know, an artist would give him a drawing. Joseph Boys would come to the factory and give Andy a drawing. And, and it would probably be worth $20,000. He'd just throw it in the box. He'd get test pressings of, you know, LPs from the Ramones that are all signed. Love, you know, dear Andy, love Joey Ramone. And that would right. go in the box. And, et cetera. and right, like As well as the junk mail that came to his office that, you know, and, advertising and, whatever. Absolutely. And he would he'd be eating a hamburger you know the famous one of warhol that video of warhol eating a hamburger he'd throw the he'd throw the burger king wrapper in there everything tissues you know used condoms uh uh, uh, uh envelopes that were full of money <laughs> that were full of cash you just throw it in there and when the box was filled he'd seal it number it and sign it and call it an artwork he'd call it a time capsule and then over the course of his uh, career, I think he did this for about 25 years. And at the end of his life, he had hundreds and hundreds of these time capsules, which is such a brilliant idea. And they all got shipped to the Andy Warhol Museum. And for years, they just sat on the shelves there. In the, if you go to the archive in the Warhol Museum, you would see them just these boxes and boxes of time capsules. The problem was everybody was afraid to open them because it's an artwork of Warhol's. When something like that got opened... Uh, you had to treat it like an artwork. So when they decided to open up the time capsules, it took three people, uh, hmm. one to open the box, one person to pull the stuff out, another to describe it, and a third to uh, type all the stuff into a database. And they had to catalog and number and describe every piece of flotsam and jetsam in those boxes, including the hamburger wrapper. You know, And so every single one, you know, it took... Years and years and years to open these things. And when they opened them up, they found treasures. And so if there was a, a thing with $10,000 in it, you know, just a, a, a cash envelope, they couldn't take that money. That had to stay there as an mm -hmm. artwork of Warhol's. But tell us, <laughs> Kenneth Goldsmith, I mean, we're talking to you about Ubu Web, which is your archive, right? Did you treat it like, uh, like a similar cardboard box, like throwing anything that you found? No. That was, um, so no. What did you throw into the box? Right. Well, I threw into the box things that I had heard about, things that were interesting to me. Um, the thing about UberWeb is that, you know, unlike Warhol, uh, well, I mean, it's a totally different thing. But I just I did want to talk about the Warhol thing just to talk about the notion of, of folk archiving and, and, right. and, and it's a, an inclusiveness. And also the idea that something that's considered junk today could be considered incredibly valuable uh, tomorrow. And that's the kind of, uh, uh, you know, I didn't want to play this, this thing safe. Now the problem, uh, the problem, I love archive.org. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a cool place, but the problem with archive.org is that archive.org is like a Warhol time capsule. Everybody throws everything in there and nobody can ever find anything. There's no, nobody makes sense of that archive. It's an yeah. accumulation. It's a brilliant that's that's the future. That's the future generation's job is to go through it and figure out if anything in there makes well, sense like to the, anybody. Like the Warhol time capsules, yeah. exactly. But you know, I I, I love archive.org, but I find it frustrating because uh, because it's not curated. And I thought, you know, I mean, in a time of a glut of cultural artifacts, uh, why do we still listen to radio? I mean, we we we've got everything in the world on Spotify and Apple Music, and yet we still listen to radio because somebody goes through it and shows us what's good. Okay, and that's so important—the role of 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 
of a of a of a person there showing showing you you know what's what's kind of good and what's kind of cool and turning on to things you know the way that you'd hear about bands in the old days you know before MTV you know uh, <laughs> somebody would say hey you got to check out this band and you go and you buy a forty five okay so that's a, you know word of mouth kind of stuff um, and so that's the way that I kind of went into Ubu but it's a very strange thing people say to me like. Uh, or I say to people, I'm sorry, why aren't there like, like more Ubu webs these days? Like mm. we, we're kind of dealing with old and dead people, you know, Marcel Duchamp and stuff like that. Why aren't young people doing an Ubu web? And my feeling is that this notion of, of archiving and curating in the way that I'm talking about it is very, very out of fashion. Um, instead, the sort of notion of a horizontal archive, just sort of something linked here, something linked there, everybody beating their own path through the Internet in sort of haphazard ways, uh, like a kind of a real flow is more than a kind of like, I, I mean, I, I based my curation on something like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They, they said, we're going to put all the coolest stuff in the world under one roof. I love that. I don't think it's a popular way anymore. Yeah, I, I don't I, see anybody we should doing have it. Some- we should have a panel of millennials and Gen Zers to, to sort of uh, fight it out with some Gen Xers. I think it might be because it, when we were young, when Gen X was young, it, there really was, you had to go from point A, you, point A to point B. Finding something worth caring about uh, was a day's work. And it really is uh, too easy in a good way for people to find something very exciting in, in a moment and to see it and to consume it and then to forget about it tomorrow because um, there's so much. There, there's a lot of good stuff on the internet. So why hold on to any of it and call it precious? Uh, well, I'll tell you why, because they disappear. Yeah, exactly. uh, so how many times have you gone to look for that YouTube video and says, oh, this video is not available in your but country then, or this has been taken yeah, down but, uh, due to copyright? And uh, I thought know. about this trying to, to build a Warhol box of, of everything that I've watched on the internet today. And it seems, um, you know, you could do it. You could screen capture your screen. Someone out there maybe is. Maybe we should find that young person. They're probably um, neurodivergent in a very special way that that they're screen capturing everything that they enjoy on TikTok and and. Well, there, uh, there was a there was a, 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 a PBS uh, uh, biography uh, by a filmmaker called Matt Wolf re- recently, uh, and he did a, a, a profile. It's of, of a woman uh, who's now dead um, named Marion Stokes in, mm-hmm. or Strokes in Philadelphia, who for 25 years oh, yeah. had eight VCRs running and taping everything. And, you know, in her lifetime, she was, she married a wealthy, a wealthy man. And so she had all the time and the equipment in the world. And she was a poor black uh, uh, woman who, who, who uh, uh, fell in love with a very wealthy white guy who funded her for the rest of her life and married her and loved her. And um, in the end of her life, she had hundreds of thousands of videotapes of stuff that we really just went away. That was ephemeral. Right. And Especially all of that uh, stuff. The, the very, getting... sorry, go ahead. Sorry. The, the very first, uh, the, the very first days of CNN being on the air are in this yeah. archive that no one else actually has those tapes. She's the only Ex- one exactly. who kept them. And guess where the, where the tapes all went in the <laughs> end? Archive. They went to archive. <laughs> and they're all digitizing them. <laughs> but again, she, uh, she was not curating. She was, uh, she was she trying, was to, she was trying to, 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 yeah, to, to build a pool to hold the fire hose of information coming over cable television. 
Um, so I, but like, I, I, I don't think it's going to be, a, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a, a young person that's, that's doing yeah. the screen, the screen caps today. You know, this was an older woman who was doing it for many years. So, yeah. so, so Kenneth Goldsmith, uh, your book is called Duchamp is my lawyer, the polemics, pragmatics, and poetics of Uber web. And, and we're talking about, you know, uh, <laughs> this sort of folk curation, um, of, of art really, or, or artifacts and, and, you know, I, I have a pet theory I'd love to bounce off you. Just, I mean, it's something I've said many times, but, but it seems relevant at this moment, is that I think one of the most pernicious aspects of social media, um, and it's inadvertent, but I think it's true, is the like button and the, and the view hmm. counter. Right. And, and because it's, it, you know, it's that dopamine cycle. It's, it's, it, and, 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 but it's a feedback loop that, you know, it gives you this incentive to do things that are popular, that, that get likes, that get views, that uh, get reactions from people. Right. We and don't have that on UbuWeb. Right, which right, which tends to reinforce, you know, which which, which which again becomes a feedback loop and causes you maybe to do more of the same thing, or or you know, and 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 not necessarily follow that thread which you maybe find most interesting yourself. Um, and, you know, and, and I came late to that, right? I mean, you know, you had maybe web counters, uh, these sort of uh, kind of little tiny numbers that would count up uh, <laughs> that you could put in in the 90s and, and maybe you'd see it go up by one or two every week if you were me. Um, but, we, you know, you and I didn't grow up with, with that sense that we could do something and get this immediate feedback. You, you would do it and maybe somebody likes it. I don't know. Do you think that that has any, any, any interplay with – with why maybe uh, there isn't the same uh, impulse to 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 create a, a nice kind of uh, a curated archive because it's hard because you don't get the feedback because you, you or, or 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 if you had the feedback mechanism you just wouldn't like the results. Yeah, well, uh, you know, artists are used to getting no feedback. Nobody <laughs> cares about your work, <laughs> you know. Never, you know, you know, painters, you know, you put up a show, maybe you get a review, a, you know, a little sale or something, and then then you go back underground for a long time. Poetry is even worse. Nobody even nobody buys books. Nobody reads them. So, you know, for me, the kind of like like long haul and lack of feedback is fine. Um, and not, not only that, on UberWeb, we host unpopular things. You know, sometimes people ask me. How come you don't put the whole site into one giant, you know, torrent or, or put them up as torrents? Huh. And the problem with torrents are that which is popular is rewarded by cedars and that which is unpopular dies for lack of cedars. OK, so that which is popular rises to the top and that which is unpopular sinks to the bottom. And I just thought, you know, I want this to be like a library. I mean, there are a lot of books in the library that never get taken out, but they sit on the shelves anyway. And eventually, maybe somebody will take them out. Or maybe they're not, you know, they get taken out every once or ten years. It doesn't make them any less valuable. It makes them very valuable to certain populations that are interested in that kind of work. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted a library model for unpopular culture. Um, you know, you just go in and, I, you know, the avant-garde are such a strange thing because, uh, you know, no, you know, everybody has a distaste for the avant-garde. You're born <laughs> not liking 
12 tone music. Nobody's born liking 12 tone music, right? You know, and so you have to have had some kind of a falling out with culture or reality to be interested in the avant garde in the first place. Something in the world wasn't really working for you the way it was set up, and you go look for alternatives, right? So that that was, you know, I think that happens for anybody who's interested in really weird, weird music or weird literature, weird film. You know, sometimes like Hollywood just isn't quite doing it for me. So that's a very few people, right? It's a yeah. small, it's a small small group. And when I got on the internet, you know, it was really hard to find that stuff. Um, you know, and I wanted to make, you know, wanted to kind of enrich in uh, the web in a way it felt. Yeah. Uh, you could say that, you, it, but I still do. Today, like, I can put up like 36 films a night, right? The other night I put 36 films up, really. I gotten really fast at it. And I tell you, at the end of, the, at the end of that session, I feel like I made the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's community service by sharing uh, obscure works that are unavailable elsewhere. Now, I get all my stuff from file sharing. Since I've been doing UberWeb for so long, I'm on the best, weirdest file sharing groups. Everything <laughs> comes up there. It's a fire hose of weird stuff that I just can keep plucking and taking this. And these no are all like private this. things, right? I mean, yes, this yes. is not the kind of thing you find on Google. This is, this, these are really interpersonal networks. You may never have met each other, but you know each other through the internet. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's old, old, old school file, file sharing groups. Um, and so I'm kind of like the Robin Hood of the avant-garde, you know? Like, I, 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 you know, I take this stuff from the very wealthy place and I put it out onto the parched waters of, you know, the parched deserts of the Internet for folks that, that want it. And most folks, you know, you can't find this stuff on YouTube. But what's great is that everything on UberWeb is downloaded because I think if you can't download it, it doesn't exist. Okay, you have to, you know, because you have to be able to download it, build your own local library. Um, and what happens is because all of our films are streaming, yes, but there's always a link below the screen that's, a, that's an AVI or an MP4 or something like that. And then what happens is folks download that from Ubu and then they throw them up onto YouTube. Right. I think sure. I think most of the avant-garde stuff up on YouTube probably ended up coming from the AVIs on Ubu. So it, 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 it's a great way of getting the stuff out there, you know? You know, and, and I know that uh, from the book, you know, that for the most part, you know, you don't have many difficulties, but occasionally, you know, people contact you and, and say, uh, hey, uh, take this, take this, take down this piece of art, take down this video, take down uh, this piece of audio or something. And, it, it, you know, it can come from sometimes from a lawyer in the form of like a cease and desist letter. Um, I mean, what do you do when that happens? Well, the first thing you have to know is that, you know, if you get a cease and desist letter, you're not getting sued. It's you getting you say it's, it's a little notification that says, hey, we see you doing that. Now, very they, you know, only a handful of, uh, of cease and desist cases uh, for this kind of stuff actually actually make it to a place of fines or court trials. But these things, can I swear on the show? I already did. Can I swear again? I, you can swear and I will have to bleep you for, for oh, certain audience. Members. Oh, okay. No, no, it's all right. I, I won't swear. I can, <laughs> I can hold, I can hold it back. Uh, 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 I don't know if you've ever re- received a cease and desist letter, but it's a really a, a frightening thing. I mean, it really looks like you're being sued. I've written and, them. <laughs> you, you know, you'll, you'll, yeah, you've written them and you're not a lawyer. That's the thing. Anybody can, anybody can write a cease and desist letter. The template's all over the internet and you can send it to somebody and scare the hell out of them and they'll do whatever, whatever you want them to do. Okay. So people just have to know that like, you know, that when you receive a cease and desist letter, it's an invitation to a discourse now, when I receive a cease and desist letter, my first response is to kind of want to dialogue uh, with the people 
uh, and say, hey, you know, you know, I, this stuff is really not valuable uh, economically, but we're fans and we, we're actually happy to support uh, your dead brother, who's a sound poet, his work. Uh, I think the more it gets out there, the more people are going to write about it and the more he's going to live uh, in, in the public imagination. If you eradicate a, 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 an avant-garde artist from a place like UberWeb, they sort of cease to exist mm-hmm. in that way. This is a, and I've, I've seen this with happen with many filmmakers uh, who have given us their stuff. And, you know, they say they've seen upticks uh, in their reputations, you know, people who were kind of forgotten. They now get gallery shows. They now get museum invitations, people writing dissertations on them because they found the work on UberWeb. Okay. So there are a lot of upsides and a lot of benefits, but if somebody really insists and they really, really insist, you know, for whatever reasons, and people have their own reasons, then I take the work down. You don't really don't want it there. I, who am I to tell you, uh, that you must have it there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, in that way, it's worked pretty well. Uh, sometimes, you know, um, copyright, you know, people, we like to think of copyright as being a black and white situation, but it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very nuanced, it's a very, very gray situation. I would love to be the guy that, you know, the copy left freak, but I'm really not. As a matter of fact, if I had an incredibly valuable property, I would probably, you know, that was generating me millions of dollars worth of revenue, I'd probably go out and try to protect that myself. But in fact, I have no such properties. I've never created them, nor do I deal with them on UberWeb. Now, once in a while, you'll get uh, a property or a name that generates a lot of money. um, And people think that because that name is up there, uh, we're generating a a revenue from it. So I got to cease and desist on the name of William S. Burroughs from a prominent literary agency. And, you know, listen, William S. Burroughs, the money is made from Naked Lunch. There's no need for us to put mm-hmm. Naked Lunch up on UberWeb. Every, although we have excerpts of, of Burroughs reading it, but that's different. You know, that's a, that, that's a book that makes, that makes a lot of money, and, and it's available. Why would I want to do it? But Burroughs also did, you know, tons of strange, uh, you know, radio mixes and, 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 and avant-garde, you know, uh, types of seances and things like that and all that stuff, which you really can't sell. Uh, even if you try to, is up on UberWeb. So you have to really know the material you're dealing with. Don't mm-hmm. touch the stuff that makes money. We have these Glenn Goldberg, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Glenn Gould, uh, Glenn Gould uh, radio plays up, Hirschspiels, uh, German word for radio play. And they're very abstract and complicated and weird. And they were you know, made for radio. They're wonderful. I wouldn't put the Goldberg variations up on UberWeb as much as I love them. And I love, I love Gould playing them. There's no way, you know, that they really fit into the archive. And also, it's a lot of money. Why, I don't want to take money out of those people's pockets. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, should something, uh, uh, an obscure cultural artifact, um, go back into print, I'll take it down immediately because I want those little presses, you know, the people that are, you know, pr- pumping out a thousand copies on, on, a, on a high density vinyl of some sound poetry or, or abstract music, electronic music. I want them to make that money. I don't, as long as it's in circulation and available for a reasonable price, I'll take it down. Do you know if there's ever been a case where uh, a, a piece of art that you've archived and hosted at Ubu web uh, ended up being the, the sort of the source, the last remaining source for something to go back into print or for, or yeah, for well, an artist's yeah, family yeah. to have it? You know, it's very interesting. Um, I have been told uh, by experts in the field that there are many things on UberWeb that are not available mm-hmm. anywhere, including 
uh, in the Artisone Archive or uh, at the, something like at the Museum of Modern Arts Archive. You know, so OpenWeb ends up becoming some sort of a weird backup through its pirate uh, proclivities, ends up being a kind of a weird backup for for artists. Uh, yes, I've had, I've had uh, sound artists contact me. I had Marina Abramovic's people contact me um, to, for, for work that was up on Ubu that Marina didn't even have a copy of. Mm-hmm. Now that's a big, you know, she's a big star. Right. So I right. think it's very, you know, again, it's a, it's, you know, listen, piracy is preservation, <laughs> you know, uh, anytime you're an artist and you get bootlegged, you should thank that person for caring. Okay, because most artists get nothing. And if you are bootlegged, that is such a sign that somebody values your work enough to bootleg it that that means that you have made it. You are a success. You know, and I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, UberWeb is a website that you host and you build. And if you were trying to build this collection, let's say, as a YouTube channel or on any other different sorts of third party platforms, as we call them, owned by somebody else. Right. Uh you would be subject to somebody else's judgment as well. And, and, and most likely you would be taken out of that mediation, right? If you hosted something on YouTube and, 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 and alleged copyright owner, somebody who at least says they own the copyright in something puts out a notice to, to YouTube, pretty much that's the end of that, right? It goes away and possibly uh, depending on your relationship uh, with your channel, you're, you're penalized uh, for, for doing so, uh, you know, and if you're somebody who makes money on YouTube, uh, you know, you can lose the, opportunity to continue uh, making money by YouTube. And YouTube, of course, is the arbiter, um, you know, in part, it's necessary due to scale, I'm certain. But, you know, there's no, there's not a lot of nuance there. And I think that's a lot of reason why people think copyright is, is very uh, black and white. You know, whereas, as you're pointing out, there's, there's all these shades of gray. And, and, and in many ways, it's the start of a conversation between a creator and other folks and creators and their audiences, I think, in, in a lot of ways um, that you sort of retain. And I know that, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, for UbuWeb, which is your archive of the avant-garde online, um, Kenneth Goldsmith, that, you know, you, you, like last night you posted something like 36 movies, uh, to, you know, additional things to, to UbuWeb. And, you know, you do this still, I mean, really the old-fashioned way, right? I mean, you're still kind of hand-coding the site when you do this, Correct. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like a Zen practice or something. Almost every night, uh, between the hours of ten and one, I'll I'll take a glass of whiskey and I'll sit down at my computer and I'll crack open templates of of pages that I wrote back in 1996. I'm still using save as, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so many generations, 25 years later, and and I'll sit down and I'll update the site. I'll put some music on and I'll start pumping away. And by about 1 a.m. Uh, you know, the site will be that much richer. Um, you know, to me, the summers are great. I'm an academic. The summers, I have the summers off. So that's when a lot of the big work gets done. You know, and it's like, I feel it's like uh, maintaining a website like that is like gardening. You know, you got to kind of mm. plant some new seeds and pull up some weeds and trim back, you know, trim trim back some of the growth and, you know, fix some things. I mean, it's a bit of a mess. You know, it's all, I can't just go in and push a button and, and fix all the links. I mean, there's so much broken stuff on the site mm-hmm. that I'm never going to get to. But, you know, that's what you try to maintain it. 
And why do you do it this way still? I mean, you know, because since then, uh, you know, there's WordPress, uh, you know, which is probably the most well-known, like blogging software. But there's all these different uh, pieces of software now that make it, you know, simpler, I guess, to uh, to post all sorts of, of content to the Internet. Uh, why why hand code it? Besides the Zen. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> well, because you remain free. Uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, I remember, you know, like I, I did try like one of the early internet building tools. It was called PageMill, Adobe PageMill mm, yes. back in the 90s or something. And guess what? That didn't last very long. These things never last very long. They broke. Um, yeah. You know, they, they get broken. Like databases too. That's why I never went. Some you know people would always say to me, "Oh my god, I can put your site into a into a great database, and you could update the whole thing with one click." But uh, what they failed to tell me was that the databases uh, often go out of business. They get sold. They become backwardly incompatible with the next version. You got to pay for the next version. And worse than that, when you're dealing with a database, you often have to deal with a sysadmin. And sysadmins, while generous, oftentimes generous and, and uh uh, uh, you know, uh, magnanimous can be really, really cranky. And once in a while they get pissed off and they walk away with the keys, which is what happened to a huge arts organization uh, in New York City. I got a call one day saying that their entire archive uh, had been rendered inaccessible. This is an archive of video and, 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 and audio going back to the 1960s because the sysadmin got pissed off and walked away with the keys and was never heard from again. Okay, so they're all, you know, and, and on top of that, you know, these, these, these you know, commercial uh, web building kits, if they want to, they can slip a lot of code in and start, start monitoring and, and tracking. You know, you're up for all that, all that horrible surveillance capitalism. When you work with those people, you have no choice. You can't opt out of those uh, uh, analytics and all that yeah. nonsense. Uh, so you're, you're in that, that mess. Uh, you're on Google. You can't get off of Google. You have no control. And they say it makes it so easy. I think it makes it, it, makes it worse. With HTML1, you know, on UbuWeb, there's, there's no trackers there's no sniffers there's no cookies the, none of those stupid uh you know i accept your uh your your, your policy of cookies because there are no cookies i mean yeah. you, you know you still can do that you don't have to play all these games and i think the uh shoshana zuboff book of surveillance capitalism from last year was was a bombshell and yet people still say well you know it's not that bad it is that bad and you need to go back to the way that it was originally and it's still possible yeah, my my pet peeve with the new internet is just uh, how uh, if you if you try to hold on to a computer for ten years and still use it, uh, it can't surf the web, and it's only because uh, websites have gotten too too uh, you know uh, burdened by all this all this extra yeah. code that's not the content that you were clicking into. Do you know do you know that the the front page of Uber web is 4K? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is still 4K. You know, instantaneous the, on today's broadband, the, right? The, well, I mean also listen, you know, the digital divide is real. There are yeah. a lot of folks around the world that are still seeing the web, you know, on on extremely slow connections, and you just can't assume that you can put all this heavy content, you know, and have folks see it. I mean, on our lower pages you get the, it gets a little bit more intense, but there's there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's no donation boxes. It, there's no nothing. It, it, when you go to UberWeb, it's 1996 all over again. <laughs> That's wonderful. And, and so uh, in a few minutes we have left here, uh, Kenneth Goldsmith, uh, you are the, the founder and I, we call you creator, uh, chief curator, it seems, of UberWeb, and you're the author of the book Duchamp is My Lawyer, um, which is your memoir of, of sort of creating and maintaining um, 
Uberweb. You know, I know you, you also have, you had a little career in radio. <laughs> and one of our favorite, very favorite radio stations in the world, WFMU out of Jersey City, uh, New Jersey, um, where your air name was Kenny G, which, mm-hmm. which I love. To, to the chagrin of many, uh, many, many avant-garde listeners. And you called it uh, Kenny G's uh, Hour of Pain. And, and, and just I want to say that unlike almost any other uh, radio station in the world, uh, the archives of your show are still there. Like people can still go back and listen to it because WFMU has always sort of expressed a, a similar sort of um, irreverence, if you will, um, that, that that UberWeb does. A similar spirit of of letting these old artifacts that would be otherwise ephemeral, these archives of radio shows on community radio, um, they stay. I mean, they're there in place. Uh, people can go back and listen. But I, I wonder if you if you can tell us a little bit about about what 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 the show was uh, and why you did it. Well, you know, listen, it's all the same. Um, you know, I was a DJ on FMU from 96 to uh, 2010 for 15 years. And um, so when Ubu started, my career at FMU started, and um, the overlap was absolutely amazing. And a lot of stuff that's up on UberWeb came from the FMU library, uh, particularly when, you know, at that point by 95, we had a lot of CDs and a lot of cool avant-garde CDs. I was just ripping stuff. I'd spend my entire show being on the air, but also I'd bring a spare computer in and just be feeding it CDs and ripping <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, a lot of community radio <laughs> DJs and college radio DJs uh, feel you on that point. Yeah, folk yeah, archiving. Yeah, yeah. Folk archiving. Well, it's true, and I think that's the way a lot of stuff gets out there. You know, We certainly couldn't have afforded or didn't have the network to buy this stuff. So um, Ken Friedman uh, uh, was a huge inspiration to me, the kind of uh, Catholic uh, notion of freeform radio, the idea that you could take something very high and then segue it into something extremely pop or extremely low and have them both make sense uh, as a leveling thing was a great inspiration for UberWeb. Um, and, and, and as I said, it sort of queered the avant-garde in a way that uh, traditional notions of the avant-garde couldn't have, uh, couldn't have been. Also, Ken has a very uh, 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 level-headed and rational uh, idea about copyright. And again, I call myself a folk archivist. I'm also a folk lawist, not folklore, L-O-R-E, but a folk L-A-W. Okay, and being fo- a, a, somebody involved with folk law is actually uh, uh, seeing law, copyright law, the way it actually works is a way instead of the way uh, it really is on the books. And I started to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit on the cease and desist letter with that. Now, I learned a lot of this stuff from Ken, who's been a folk lawist mm-hmm. forever. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Ubu and, 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 and uh, uh, one of the uh, Ubu web streams used to be an Ubu web stream. Uh, so for many years, even after I left the station, FMU continued to support Ubu web by, by, by streaming, giving us backups. I mean, the, you know, the, the two histories of, of the two things are, mm-hmm. are, are intertwined very strongly. Yeah, because that's a, I mean that's also commensurate with the time when I think about when WFMU first started streaming online. WFMU was very early in in streaming uh, in in period for for uh, broadcast radio, and and and, and I think the, the real innovation, as I see it as well, was as soon as it was sort of practical, they started archiving. 
right? And 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 allowing you to go back in time and listen to shows that had happened um, on a mass scale, right? Up to that point, it was probably again more like uh, folk archiving in that individual DJs at some you know college or community station might archive their own programs their own way. Uh, you know, based on, you know, digitizing cassettes, you know, or something like that. Um, and, and so it was haphazard. Uh, certainly I did the same thing with my own show and, and I was really haphazard for, you know, the first six years that I did it uh, or so. And, and yet WFMU has done it and, and maintained it right uh, in a way, you know, a way that, that by the letter of the law, right. Uh, w- one might say that's not permitted, but but ultimately, in, in, in the folk law, as you point out, um, it, it causes no harm, really, because, you know, again, WFMU is not really trafficking in, in top 40 hits in the million-dollar million dollar, uh, artists. It's trafficking well, in, in the obscure and, and in things yeah. that, that are delightful, you know. I tell a story in the book uh, about uh, uh, after Prince died. And uh, Ken on the station blog put up all these remixes of Prince songs. One was Little Red Corvette, but somebody had remixed the song backwards. And Ken started receiving all these kind of automatic cease and desist on on Little Red Corvette. And Ken took the MP3 down, you know, because, you know, he likes, he's got, since he's a funded person, he's got to play it a little bit uh, uh, straighter than I do. I receive no funding. So I, you know, I don't have to listen to what anyone says, but Ken does. So he said, okay, I'll take the thing down. You know, he took the thing down. The cease and desist letters still kept coming. Uh, and they were automatic. And what Ken finally realized was that they were picking up on the title of the blog post that said Little Red Corvette, not Mm -hmm. so much even the artifact, trying to scare and shake down everybody that was putting up anything having to do with Prince or Little Red Corvette. So, you know, even when things get weird there, and Ken, you know, to this day, he still gets the cease and desist letters because he left, he put the MP3 back up and left the post there, and they, they, they still keep coming. They're all, you know, they're just automated, and he just ignores them now. And so now, uh, Kenneth, you have been, you know, creating, curating, and maintaining Ubu Web for uh, for basically a generation. Um, and you say, you know, especially this time of year when when the academic calendar is a little lighter, you know, you spend a few hours in your evenings uh, getting things posted, and 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 I'm sure you spend even more time in in collecting and and making sure you have things, finding, seeking them out. Uh, all this time later, why do you still do it? Well, like I said before, it's community service. I may, it makes the world a better place. It's my politics. You know, it's my activism. I believe in free culture. I believe in free education. I believe cultural materials should be available to everybody uh, who does. I mean, so few people have access to this kind of material. And this material changes people's lives on an individual basis. As I talked about with the beauty of the gesture of Marcel Duchamp, if, you know, if you just have that little key that anything can be art, even that brick on the street can be art, then the world becomes a better place to live in and to be in. And that's the kind of, kind of, uh, uh, underlying reason I keep doing this. It, 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 it's my, it's my activism. Uh, and it's my, my, the thing I believe in most. Wonderful. Uh, Eric, do you have any other questions? Oh, you know, uh, maybe too many, but okay. uh, it depends on how Kenneth is doing. Uh, I'm cause we, we did, want. we did, uh, we did reach the, um, the 59 minute mark for the radio edit, 
but I'd be happy to to continue chatting. Yeah, if you want to talk uh, a little more, I'm, I'm, I got no. It's it's quarantine, so you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yes. so I, I got no. I got nowhere to be. Believe me, quarantine yeah, so, has so, been a, a real a boon for podcasting. Is all I can say, yeah, Kenneth. And, yeah. and I, I work I in, heard that I, I work yeah. in it professionally, so I know this <laughs> rather yes. directly. But it's been a boon for us as well. So we really we do appreciate your willingness. Yeah, to sure, no problem. I'm happy to chat, chat a little bit more. Well, yeah, Kenneth, tell us tell us about. I'm curious because I. Uh, you know, you're talking about how how the avant garde, you know, as as all art in general, you know, for a certain chunk of the uh, 20th century was really like a white man, a white male, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever playground, and you know, white women uh, got got a chance to be recognized as important artists for for a certain latter half of the 20th century. But I'm wondering if Ubu Web, um, if you found any. Uh, cool stuff from like you know from from the rest of the world that you could tell us about any anything from african-americans or africans uh what's going on with with the rest of the avant-garde art oh it's 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 steaming it's great uh it's so rich and you know it's what's really interesting is that um you know i'm always trying to diversify uh the notion of the avant-garde and there are so many great uh, African-American artists that are making avant-garde uh, videos. And I've been grabbing them and I've been putting them up, up on Ubu. But sometimes, because these artists are so hot, I get cease and desist letters from mm-hmm. their representatives saying, hey, take this stuff down. We're selling this stuff like mad. Uh, uh, please, you know, please, please take it down. We can't, we can't have it out there, you know, which I respect, you know, for folks haven't been make, you know, these are low profile, low right. visibility. I would like to promote them, but the last thing I want to do is take money out of the pocket of folks that, that, that have had a struggle making that kind of money. Uh, so it's been a funny conundrum while I've tried to really, you know, uh, broaden the scope, scope, but believe me, there's plenty of other uh, non-renumative, uh, 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 less accessible. For example, there's a Fluxus composer called Ben Patterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Patterson, who recently died, uh, was, was the only black member of Fluxus and a great avant-garde composer that nobody, whose nobody's work knows about. I mean, it's really weird stuff um, and, and very good. So we've been building up the Ben Patterson archive because that's something that really nobody's going to come after us for. Um, and and trying to showcase uh, that we have, I mean, we, there's we, there's uh, uh, you know the the art is an avant garde is a worldwide phenomenon now. We have uh, uh, art collectives, a lot of stuff from art collectives from Asia uh, that are up there. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's just vast at this point. Yeah. Again, my focus is really on on dead or nearly dead people, so I I can't do the contemporary stuff. I just don't have the bandwidth personally. And I'm not a curator. I'm a, you know, I'm a poet, I'm an artist or whatever you want to say. I'm not, I'm not trained in this stuff. So I think it needs to be done on a, on a level uh, of what's going on with younger people right now. But I can tell you a dead guy like Ben Patterson, he's treated like royalty on Uber web. How about, how about any public access television? Mm. We do. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have some of those, um, um, there was a, a group, <laughs> the site is so big. Uh, I'm, I can't, I can't remember the name. <laughs> uh, but, but we have, I mean, people have given us, uh, uh, public 
access uh, avant-garde stuff. A lot of the video work that we have initially aired on public access and people ripped it off the TV. Another thing, another great source of this stuff is a lot of folks in Europe rip stuff off of RTTV in France or RAI TV because they play all sorts of avant-garde old stuff and people make VHS rips. A lot of the stuff we have on Ubu is very poor quality because it's, uh, you know, wobbly VHS rips that, you know, umpteenth generations old. I figure it's better to have, you know, a little bit of stale food than no food at all. Well, let's, you know, I don't really, I don't mind quality. I'd like, well, let, let, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because it was a part of your book. I, I also uh, greatly enjoyed because you, you you take up this idea of the quality um, and the fact that um, you you definitely prioritize simply having the the artifact versus having you know meeting a certain standard. And I know that within the archiving community, it's often a point of tension between people who are. Um, not professionally credentialed archivists versus folks who are folk archivists or or really professional archivists who never went through the credentialing process who are out there doing it who 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 I think come down more on your side of it of of they'd rather have the artifact rather than have you know than wait until we can we can source the the full HD uh, copy or something like that but you know but I also know that sometimes artists object. <laughs> when when they when they see a less than uh, pristine version of their work uh, somewhere, I mean, how do you do, do you ever get do you ever get that kind of feedback? Do you ever get someone saying, "Oh goodness, uh, please take down that that MP4 that that VHS rip because it's not a very good example of yeah, what I and, do." Yeah, and often and oftentimes they say, "Please take down that VHS rip. Let us give you a better oh, a, a yeah. better copy." Okay. Which is awesome. And I'm like, yes, I don't love those copies, but, you know, until something better arrives. Another time, uh, there's another artist that I speak about in the book, a filmmaker called Andrew Lampert, uh, who gave us a couple of films. And somehow, somewhere along the way, he can't tell whether it was his thing or something happened on the servers. The two things got jumbled up. The films got interspliced. And, and it was completely not anything like what he gave me. And he said... I said, well, Andy, do you want me to replace it with something better? And he said, no, I feel like you've done a brilliant or the machines have done a brilliant remix of my work that I never would have thought. And I delight in, I delight in the new version of it, which is, you know, that, that's such a beautiful attitude. Eric, do you, do you wow, have I love Oh, I'm just excited. I'm, now I'm like looking at the website. Oh, UbuWeb is, know. I mean, I've lost so many, so many evenings uh, in, in the last... I don't know. I probably found out about UberWeb from WFMU, you know, probably early days of the WFMU blog. It's somewhere in the '90s. It seems to. Yeah, be. yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, so there are right. still there are still real audio files up on UberWeb. I don't think so. Okay, no. So you just have. I just found an old. I just found an old page where it's like you can use the you can get this real audio player. It's not hard. How, how much that. of a pain in the ass was it to take all that real audio and reconvert it to to? Uh, well, actually, I think this is this is really an important point, and you may want to stick this in somewhere. Yeah, um, privatized technologies are always a bad idea. I know somebody owns the copyright on on MP3, and I guess they could kind of pull it for the world around. Now it's now it's um, now uh, fully unpatented, so it's now something okay. which there are no longer any royalties because you know patents run out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so. I made the mistake with real audio of investing in something that was private and spending an awful lot of time and having to spend a ton of time, you know, reconverting this stuff. It was the only you know, game in ha- town in the in the late nineties, early aughts. It really was the way to get audio online. 
you know, it was the, uh, yeah, it was yeah, the we primary. Didn't know any, we, we didn't know any better. And there really and so wasn't any why, better. Yeah. That's, that's why, you know, uh, I, I try to stay away from, from privatized uh, uh, technologies. You know, they can always take it away from you. Uh, they can always render it incompatible. I learned a lot from having rendered everything in real audio and then having to go back into MP3. Uh, I, you know, if I was really as pure as I say, I would put everything up as, you know, AUG files, you know, or even FLAC files. But you know what? I've I, I, I made the decision to go with MP3. <laughs> I thought it was more universally uh, uh, playable. Well, and it yeah. is. You know, I've, I, I worked in digital media for most of my career. I, I worked in internet media in universities in, in, in the mid-90s, so it was part of that having to make that decision, right? And, and the way things worked and, and, and what was supported and it's, it's always imperfect. And, and, and we're lucky. I mean, we're not lucky. It's, it's, it's the nature of how the law works that the patents on MP3 have run out. So they've, it's effectively become, you know, it's free now, open source, if you will, uh, for all intents and purposes. But I, I do think you make, you make a good point. Um, and something which, you know, I've, as someone who works in media has advocated now for, for those same 25 years is, you know, you need to, you know, always retain a, a readable copy in the best quality that you have available to yourself, right. uh, regardless of what you end up putting up online, um, you know, so that you can always return and you're not locked in. And should technology change, uh, you, you have some recourse. So it sounds like you must have had probably like wave files or something of those things that you ripped uh, that you could go back to at least to, to replace those real audio files. Is that right, Ken? Well, uh, you know, now there's I, I have a, a, a converter that actually converts real audio files ah. to MP3. So I'm I don't know, but it's it's all old history. You know, it's all yeah. you know right. the, compared to the size of the site now, it wasn't it really wasn't that much to to redo. You know, Kenneth, I, this is something that I've thought about as a folk archivist. I like I didn't think of I didn't I'm going to start using that <laughs> uh, you know self identifier, but well, uh, you know. One of the strengths of Ubu Web, it seems to me, is that it's yours and that you're not, you know, you didn't, um, it, I, I, as far as I know, you've never had a staff or even interns to help you with it, Drew, volunteers ever? Uh, you know, over the years, people have kind of drifted in, but then they yeah. kind of drift out. <laughs> At the um, end of the you, day, it's it's always a one-man show. Do you have any plans to so that it, ex it can still exist in case you get hit by a bus. Uh, no one's leaving the house these days, so maybe you have to get hit by a meteorite, right? You, uh, you, know, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, I, I love the idea that it's, it's, you know, again, like so much, it's ephemeral. Um, mm. But there's, the thing is, that's my theory, but there are people all over the globe who have archived the site to death, um, uh, uh, it's, it's right. been mirrored. Um, it's been, it's right now there's our, there's, there, there's kind of some kind of uh, computer thing that they write that goes into the archive. And every time I update it, it pulls down a copy, uh, onto their site, onto their server. This thing is so mirrored and so archived that it's going to, you know, I, it, it, you can't, you, it can't disappear. But the other thing is if somebody wanted to, wanted to, uh, buy the site, uh, uh, they couldn't really because to actually legitimize uh, legally all of those artifacts on there would cost untold millions and sure. millions of dollars. You know, even if you wanted to legitimately make a site that size today and you have a budget, you'd need 
tens of millions of dollars to do it all correctly. For example, the Museum of Modern Art, as great, great as they are, and they have extensive holdings, they can't put anything online. You know, you go online, they show you what exhibitions are up or what the menu for the cafeteria is, what talks are going to be done. But actually, if you go look for, say, a Stan Brakhage film, actually experience an artwork online on the Museum of Modern Art, it doesn't exist because the process of clearing permissions and rights uh, is so expensive for a single film that they haven't even begun to approach that. Yeah, and we, yet on Uber Web, I put up 36 films every night. That's one of the things we've learned from people doing archives of like public radio uh, across across the country that um, it's it's always a huge lift when they accomplish that, when they make it, when, you know, so usually people, uh, users have to sign in and click something that they agree uh, not to be pirates or some such, but then they're allowed to stream the art, the collection. But that was something that um, was a huge investment for those for that institution. Uh, and it's like a rare, it's a rare and beautiful thing when they can actually let people on the internet somewhere else, uh, you know, experience the work. Uh, get, yeah. Get, uh, get to have that. Uh, I'm told, you know, I have this long footnote that I'm not going to read, but I'll surmise it. Um, uh, that MoMA, why can't I asked uh, an expert, why can't MoMA put up a, a put up a video? Um, and they told me that, um, uh, I can just start by saying that, uh, you know what? Let's not go here because it's very long. Okay. It's, too, it's too complicated. You can cut this one from, from the conversation. Sure, but sure, anyway, sure. what they just say basically is they, they, they look at uh, Paul. If you have the book, go look at there's a long, long footnote in, in one of the things in the, in the back there that tells you what I wish I put this in the front of the book that talks about how hard it is for a place like moment to put one film online it, it, yeah, it's, it's about it's about a page oh, yeah, it's, it's like, about like a page one foot yeah, like 280 page 285 is where it is. yeah yeah and it's a really it's an amazing thing and i'm so sorry i thought it was too long and too it would throw off the, the flow of the book and I, I i buried it and i'm so sorry i did because it's really one of the best things in the book anyway have a look if at you don't that. mind i don't want i don't need to cut that out you just corner you know you explained <laughs> You explained why it's important. Yeah, you've right, just given so. people an incentive to go read the book. There you yeah. go. Well, I'm yeah. looking forward to I borrowing mean, it from Paul. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, read the book. By the way, the book, uh, I, I uh, friends of mine, uh, without me knowing it, uh, found the book uh, online already, and all my pirate pals have released the book for free on their, on their pirate sites. So, you know, a book about piracy which I'm not allowed to do with my, my Columbia University Press, uh, people have gone and have, have released the book, and I it's agree. all over the Internet already. And it's, and, and, and it's, not, even been, it's not even been officially released. It's officially released on Monday, <laughs> and the book is, is out there pirated already. I thought I wrote in the book, I said, I, I need a, a year having this book, and then I'll release it. You know, let my publishers recoup the work that they put into it. And then, you know, uh, an academic book like this has a run about, of about a year or so. And then I'll put it out there for file sharing. But, you know, people today, of course, uh, grabbed it already and put it out there. Has, has the book brought UbuWeb more attention or have you or both maybe positive and or negative? You know, uh, the book hasn't really been released yet as we're speaking. It's really? I've, verge, I've had my but... copy for, for... – <laughs> I bought it legitimately. So. 
<laughs> I know, I know that because of COVID, all of the dates got really shifted and very strange. But, um, you know, uh, OpaWeb over the years has gotten a tremendous amount of attention. And on the other hand, nobody seems to really know it. Right. Uh, I talk, you know, in the book, I talk about how, uh, you know, I'll often be, you know, at a fundraiser dinner for, you know, uh, the Museum of Modern Art. Somebody will have invited me and I'm sitting next at, at a table with rich collectors, gallery directors, museum directors, you know, big, important, rich people. And they'll say, so what do you do? And I say, well, I run a website called UberWeb. And to a T, not a single person has heard of it. These are people that live, you know, in the world of galleries and physical artifacts. So, you know, um, uh, Nam June Pike, the uh, video artist, said uh, like 40 years ago. No, I'm sorry, not 40 years ago. I'm sorry. He said, Nam June Pike, the video artist, said back in the mid-90s, he said, the Internet is for everybody who doesn't live in New York City. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I, I kind of thought that that by what he meant by that was that New York City is such a place with physical and te- you can hear symphonies, you can see films every night, you can go to galleries so that the Internet is for everybody who's outside of New York City. And in a funny way, like the art world is sort of that way. Um, they're so uh, focused on the on the cocktail parties and the dinners and the and the and the you know the beautiful people and the rich artifacts that they have absolutely no use for UberWeb. But then UberWeb's audience is very diverse, and it you know a lot of folks are are are, are taking care of elderly parents in suburbs. They're working jobs. They're staying home with young kids. We're all quarantined at this point, and there's no more. So you know, for all the people that don't have access to the treasures of a place like New York City has to offer, then you can always see this on UbuWeb all the time. And to me, that's, again, um, a democratic impulse. It's, it, you know, it, it gives access to folks that don't generally have access, but who actually love this stuff. And I, you know, all those museum directors, I don't think they love this stuff at all. I don't think they care about it at all. <laughs> so it's, it's, the site is not for them. It's for everyone else, let's say. But you I'm live wondering... in New York. <laughs> well, yeah. But I do, uh, but UbuWeb... Yeah, sorry. That's a, I just, I'm wondering if you know anything about any uh, like derivative works that are exist uh, from UbuWeb, uh, you know, like oh. people that are using it as a as a um, as a resource to make new art. Uh, absolutely, I, I don't know about everything because I I don't keep any right. stats. You know, I don't even know how many people use the site. Uh, you know, I don't look at stats. I refuse to. What do I need to look at stats? So I, 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 there's no advertising. So. I have nothing to sell to advertisers. I have no grants. I never write a grant, so I don't have to tell them how many people come, what the demographics is, and none of that stuff. I don't care. So I don't really hear about a lot of stuff, but what I love is the misuse of UberWeb. I've gotten reports that sounds, weird sounds from UberWeb, are being mixed into dance mixes on the dance floors of Sao Paulo, yeah. and that the site becomes a great place for DJs looking for new and weird sounds. So they're throwing like sound poetry into the dance mixes on dance floors in South America. To me, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an exciting uh, it's an exciting resource. And an, another thing is that that people. Um, uh, make programs. There's film programs going on all over the world from UberWeb. There's UberWeb film festivals. <laughs> I don't even know anything about people just, just, just plucking stuff from Ubu and calling it an UberWeb film festival. Other people have written randomizing programs for UberWeb. There was a thing called Ubu Roulette, which, which picked random 
random things. Mm-hmm. But I do have some really interesting news, some really good news about UberWeb, two very important stabilizing things. And one of them is that I got an uh, email from the Library of Congress who now wishes to archive UberWeb, which wow. I thought was really amazing. Yeah. And that's funny, but I have to somehow figure out a way to let them in because I have all the trackers and 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 all of the uh, spiders are blocked from the web. So I don't know if they're going to be able to actually archive it. I got to work on that, number one. And number two, a chateau in the Loire Valley in France that is one of the best museums of contemporary art has recently offered UberWeb their entire fourth floor, a 4,000 square foot space to become a permanent exhibition site dedicated to UberWeb. Wow. A physical UberWeb. A physical UberWeb. And I, you know, I, that sounds really fun. You know, we can I, somehow, you know, cinema screening rooms and listening rooms. I don't know. We're going to have to figure that one out. So in other words, yeah. So there's like all this kind of weird institutionalization. You know, if you do something wrong enough for long enough, it actually ends up becoming right. UberWeb was done wrong from day one. You know, we've done everything wrong. We never asked permission. You know, we're not trained. We, me, forget we, me. I'm not trained. I know nothing about, I really know nothing about this stuff. I just happen to like it. I wonder, Kenneth, I wonder, you told us about how WFMU was a very important inspiration for for building stuff. I wonder if we can get a little Gen X nostalgic and talk about any, is is there another uh, magazine or yes. or a pile of yes. VHS yes. tapes that yes. inspired you from yes. the eighties. Yes, uh, the best one, uh, and I ta- I write I've written a whole chapter about it in the book. It was a magazine out of the Bay Area uh, in the late seventies, mid seventies to early to mid to we probably ran through the mid nineties called Research Magazine. Oh, yeah, research publications. Right, I was with and Paul is- in Seattle. Uh, when 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 being with Paul was was physically possible, and I bought a copy of research at a bookstore up there in front of him. So yeah, we're yeah yeah. Um, uh, you know, it w- was founded by a guy called Vival, uh, who was uh, a, a, the drummer in Blue Cheer originally. A uh, guy that that uh, uh, a uh, Japanese American guy that kind of grew up in foster homes ended up working at City Light Bookstore and started research as. Um, and what he did was very great. Uh, he took kind of the grody, uh, grotty, grody uh, punk magazine aesthetic, and he got a really good designer in there. And he dressed up the avant-garde in beautiful and sexy ways, okay? Mm-hmm. So it was content like Throbbing Gristle and William S. Burroughs and Survival Research Laboratories packaged like it was L Magazine. I mean, it was really, really beautiful. And it just stood out. You just wanted to have these things. And he said, well, you know, why does the avant-garde always have to be so ugly? Mostly it had to be ugly because there was no money. But here's a guy that he hooked up with some kind of graphic designers. There was no, no real money. Uh, but he actually managed to produce something that made the avant-garde sexy. Yeah, I also and, I really appreciate his work because um, it's you know you could be an insider reading insider information and get the inside jokes, but he also has it's accessible to a reader. So he, you don't have to be from the subculture to be able to read an article about the subculture. Then, and that's what I wanted to do with UberWeb. Like you know, yeah. like this stuff isn't that scary. You know, it's kind of friendly if you have, have you know if you wrap it up in something beautiful. And a lot of people think UberWeb is some kind of beautiful big institution because its design is so minimal and looks so elegant. <laughs> you know, HTML1, uh, yeah. you know, and 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 
you know, I thought it was important to treat the work uh, that I was putting up there not like slop, uh, but actually to, to, to make it look like it belonged in an online museum, which I want UberWeb to be. So Vival and Research Magazine were just enormous and continue to be because he mm-hmm. keeps putting stuff out, uh, though much more sporadically. Uh, enormously influential on UberWeb, probably the, the the most influential. Well, that's a great place, I think, uh, to, to yeah, wrap it you. up here. Uh, okay. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Um, All right, this guys. has been a delightful <laughs> conversation. Um, and, and yeah. you can tell we're nerds on this stuff. I mean, it's one of these things mm. we could we could go we could take up your whole day uh, in exhaustion. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I love it. I love speaking about it. The thing I I wanted to write this book before it escaped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, next year I'll be sixty, and uh, you know I've been doing this for twenty five years. It could go another twenty five years, so I don't don't know if I'm going to be around for that. Uh, and there's a lot of good stories in the book and I wanted to tell it, uh, in a way that, you know, where, when I, when I sort of still had it in me to remember it, uh, so that it would be sort of on the record at some point, hopefully just to serve as inspiration to say that what you thought was impossible, what you thought was no longer possible, what the corporations tell you is no longer possible is garbage. It's still possible to be independent. It's still possible to do whatever you want. And it's still possible not to buy into uh, 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 surveillance capitalism and yeah. NSA scraping. You can, you can get off that grid and still be on it. And I would, it, it, I would add a caveat to, to what you just said is that you could get off of it. It's still possible. And it's, it's also possible to be popular in a way that is uh, you could be successful and have an audience and have a group of people that appreciate what you do. And when you stop counting the like button clicks but to start doing you do what you want to do but it also still um it matters to other people and that's Longevity like I think is that's very key. exciting yeah yeah i i you know, you know i there i think it's a, a thing that artists you know uh believe in artists believe if 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 they think what they're doing is interesting eventually people are going to find that interesting too yeah i think we'll have to take a deep breath see a bigger picture calm down and know that in the end you know there's enough love to go around for everyone in the universe and that's what i want to end with cool wonderful thank you once again and i will say mission accomplished with the book i came i did come away inspired and reminded of these things that i i know but you they need to be reified every so often and and, and you you really did that work here i really appreciate thank it. you so much paul uh thank you so much for bringing kenneth goldsmith onto the radio survivor you know this is this is just the uh, outro for the podcast since we we certainly filled an hour's worth of content for our radio program but uh you know, you and I are so excited about the work of Ubu Web and the things we talked about today that we figured we could share a little bit more of our thoughts together. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I was absolutely thrilled. I don't know if you could tell uh, that, that Kenneth was able to join us. Uh, you know, when I got his book, uh, Duchamp is my lawyer. I mean, I just tore through it. Um, I mean, this is a book for me. Um, you know, as as a child of the '90s internet, as um, you know, somebody who is, believe very strongly, in, and I think it's something we've talked about here on, on Radio Survivor at times as well, you know, in, in, in the power of sharing things online and then making sure that you still can share them, right? And we talk, right. we've talked about it, you know, kind of with regard to radio and, and podcasting. Well, I think what you're saying is being platform agnostic. Yeah. As, you know, yes, build yourself a Facebook page, but make sure that everything you post on that Facebook page is available to people 
who aren't on Facebook and make sure you keep a copy of your stuff as one example. Yeah, you know, and we've and you've talked to uh, Ken Friedman of WFMU, uh, who we talked about, of course, with 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 Kenneth because uh, he's he's a friend of Ken Friedman and, and did a show at WFMU for fifteen years, you know, and and that's something which Ken Friedman has been a big proponent of, um, you know, helping to build something called Audience Engine, uh, which is intended to be a way for community radio stations and non commercial radio stations not to give away their audience right. really to to these other platforms to be able to provide audiences of the way to engage with with radio stations and the and the myriad creators djs presenters etc who, who are there uh without having to, to to give away the store uh, uh to facebook you know where if you use like the the firefox browser now an open source web browser you know it, it it's feature has a feature called the, the the facebook fence which tries to minimize facebook's ability to track you if you use facebook um you know we're in that kind of world right, you know, in case people are not aware, I'm sure everyone is who's listening to my voice. Actually, I'm 100% sure, but you should know that if you log into Facebook on your browser and then go to a different website, Facebook is able to track you to that other website. It's why you'll end up getting ads that are relevant to your search. Two things that you've been looking around for. Yeah, yeah, why they seem oddly, oddly uh, prescient. Um, but, you know, I, so I think it's that's important. And that's important. just one example of one website that tracks you. Yeah, and not, building your own website right? and, have you know, whether it's your podcast or whatever and not only relying on, even if it's a, a really nice third party, you know, who you're paying money to, uh, who who will only build what you want them to build. You know, there's all sorts of <laughs> who, websites. Who happens to advertise aggressively and, and right. prop up the podcast. Well, and industry. I'm in no position <laughs> to tell you not to use one of these these services, certainly. And, and, and it's not what I mean to say. Yeah, it's more but, of a, it's more there's of a, a value to building your own thing. Yeah, there there really always is. is this value and, 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 and some longevity. You know, I've have I've had some of my websites and domains right. now for, you know, 20 years. So I'm not, not quite as long as 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 Ubu Web, you know, that I continue to maintain. And I, and I keep toying with with tearing some down and rebuilding them with just plain old code HTML uh, so that I'm not as reliant on on uh other types of software that i didn't write and don't you know and it could go away and and could render something less useful down the line you know and that's so that side of the story is certainly inspiring but the other part of it is the, the simple fact that you know you know kenneth left us with with a bon mot that was you know um if you do something wrong for long enough eventually it becomes you know uh, it becomes right and mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, the creation of UbuWeb, he didn't go asking for permission first. And as he got into it with us, you know, he explained that, you know, when if an artist's estate or an artist themselves comes to him and asks him to take things down, he tries to enter into a dialogue, tries to see if right. there's a middle ground, if, if everyone can come to agreement. But ultimately, if they can, he takes it down. It's not he's not throwing a middle finger up to people who who, who are creators or publishers. Uh, most often, he, you know, he's focused on things that are no longer published, that are no longer accessible, that are hard to right. see and he helping said, to keep a uh, spirit alive, if you will. Pi- piracy is preservation. I yeah. think it's really... It's really nice to talk because, like, you know, so much of the – I mean, this is a, maybe a different episode of someone else's podcast, but so much of what is uh, put online for sharing is, like, you know, the primary uh, commercial product of the day. So right. it's the Marvel movie. It's it's the Star Wars movie. And so, of course, there's a interest by, you know, to – 
to right and, and Ken sort of that notes that directly and, and and doesn't you know question that outright kind of you know he says you know basically he's not interested in that and and he and he says right. you know if i if i had if i had an interest in some multi-million dollar property i'd probably want to protect it as well um you know what but what i think you know where this kind of comes around to with with you know community radio uh, serves in college radio i mean serves his mm. curatorial role right and often unearths things both that are contemporary or or aged that are you know th- that are not popular that are hard to find but uh, but are, but are are inspired and and amazing or or confusing and and so there's a, there's a, there's a synergy there but yet also you know having been in college and community radio uh, for so many years as i have there's also you know there's very there's a conservative impulse rather than conservationist impulse and i understand it where where folks are scared of those cease and desist right. letters as we talked about right. are well, scared yeah, of sort no, of yeah. pushing the boundaries at all especially online where where ultimately you know people aren't aren't savvy and it's understandable that they aren't because it takes a lot of effort to be savvy and in in what is what are the real consequences of sort of bending the rules you know and 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 what it does is unfortunately deprives you know listeners and communities uh from extended access and, and from maybe having you know from making from the station's output to be more accessible and i'm I'm not out there telling any community radio station they need to change what they do or that they're doing it wrong um i'm just noting that tension right and that you know and, and right. as i noted in, in the interview wfmu has been keeping its archives on for a very long time yeah yeah we, I mean, we don't want to tell on them but right well, we, well it's easy to know i mean you could just go look, look of, at it archives of because, you know, many stations keep their archives, you know, NPR keeps up its archives, but we're talking about archives of music. Yeah, which is or a sure, music deal, programs. Which is more rare. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, and so not, not, you know, they're not making it easy for you to download somebody's album uh, at all. Uh, that's not what it's there for. But if you want to go back and listen to Kenneth Goldsmith's uh, programs, uh, you can. Um, and. You know that's probably a, a great net good both for the world as well as probably for a lot of the artists he featured who who aren't million sellers who are not deriving much in the way of rents uh, on singles and and it may be impossible to actually buy a single or a record of theirs or or a download or a store stream at all um, yeah. you know and and it, it, it's sort of noting that um, you know that if we can't only be highly reverent of, of all these rules and all these laws in part because they're hard to understand and not a lot of people understand them. And, and also, you know, pointing out that, you know, for the most part, we don't have, there's not a copyright police. There's not uh, an intellectual property police patrolling the streets of the internet. Um, it's a complaint driven enterprise, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 a, it's a nasty letter sending enterprise. And mm. we, we hear about the outliers, you know, this is sort of the, the canonical uh, grandmother who is sued by the recording industry because uh, the grandchild uh, downloaded an album on BitTorrent or on 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 LimeWire uh, like ten a years ago. Year old. You yeah. know, right? Uh, but but you know it, what we fail to sort of take into account is that you know it's it sort of it's a man bites dog kind of situation. We know of it because it's extreme. We know of it because it's an outlier. And I know that it's sort of I'm I'm, I'm certainly not immune to it. It 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 it, it uh, tingles our spidey sense and our, our fear and makes us want to want to hold back. While, while at the same time, you know, it, it, unfortunately, right, it, then it is a, a fundamentally, you know, it has 
you know, it it it, it really does have have this sort of uh, effect of of silencing, right? Of uh, a chilling effect, if you will. And then of course, you know, someone suing a a grandmother for for millions of dollars is intended to have a chilling effect, right? It's intended to scare us. And again, I'm not advocating as you go out and and, and start bit torting, uh, you know, top pop albums. I, I do nothing of the sort. So much to say that it's it's an articulate conversation. And and I'm really glad that that Kenneth uh, Goldsmith put this down in a book. Uh, and there's a lot to it, and we can have these conversations. But and I think about you know internet radio in particular, right? Uh, as we documented um, a lot uh, four years ago in 2016, when you know right. a statute that was on the books that made it relatively inexpensive for small, essentially nonprofit or barely prof, barely remunerative internet radio stations to exist and play copyrighted music. Right, which for which they had to pay royalties. And so there was a specific exemption written for them that expired in 2016. That all of a sudden made it much more expensive uh, to run an internet radio station where, where you would play music that for which there's a copyright interest. Yeah, I'm really proud of that uh, of those series of episodes, and also there was a handful of episodes of Radio Survivor prior to the to those rules changes where we really, I feel like we might have been the. Uh, uh, the podcast of record on how how the folks in the streaming radio world the the ones who weren't uh, linked to terrestrial radio the independent yeah, streams the, if you're um, a college radio station or even just a, 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 you know whether you have a, a broadcast uh, license or you don't um you you pay those low rates a community radio station pays low rates and, it, and it's yeah. much more accessible but but, but i also indie indie streams really uh, yeah were an interesting because there's uh, no one to the represent their interests essentially yeah right but but I also continuously wonder. It's like yes, but you know, eh, what if you're really not playing music that anyone cares about? You know, I mean, you're playing the Ubu web stream essentially. Uh, you know, do you really need to go through all the rigmarole and all the and all of the all all of the signing up and 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 counting your streams and doing all the uh, there's a lot of accounting work frankly which is what makes it somewhat more pernicious than simply the fact that you have to pay anyone and i'm all for artists being paid especially working artists artists working today who are looking to try and make a living from their music i am really all for them them being paid and making a living from from that intellectual property so the way yeah, our but world there's works. a tension between between the people getting paid what they're worth and people being forgotten, which can right, talk exactly. about on the show. And, and I that, wonder, right? Is, is, there, are, is, there are working artists right now whose work is selling and he's very happy to take their work down off Ubu yeah. web so that they can continue to uh, increase the value of their products so that they can make a living uh, doing what they do. But then there's the, the contrast is the artist that no one right. cares about or will remember. And the only, the only place where their memory is kept alive is a place like Ubu web is these, uh, piracy corners like, yeah you know, and, and what if i want to create you know and, and 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 what about you know folks who want to create internet radio that's really about you know the unpopular culture as kenneth puts it you know that yeah. is about interesting things or maybe working more directly with artists you know rather than the presumption being you have to you know get all this licensure in place and and part of the allure and original allure of, of internet radio was that it was you know essentially license free you don't have to you know, uh, petition the federal government or wait around for a window or, or be in some kind of competition. You can just put it up there, you know, and I want, and they probably do exist, you know, and, and they probably, they, they, they keep a low profile, these stations that are, yeah. that are not uh, necessarily playing by the, uh, by the royalty regime rules because they're not, they're playing music where, uh, 
it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, or they have direct relationships with the artists and the labels or the art, you know, or they're yeah. artists and music musicians who, who also themselves don't play by the regime, you know, or, or they're, uh, or they're on the, uh, the new streaming giants sub, you know, below the radar. Yeah, right? right. So you talked a year or two ago about YouTube having uh, sort of become a new de facto web radio streaming service for a moment because uh I think at that moment may have even passed. No, I think it still happened, uh, but it's still cat and mouse. And, and, and a lot of it is, um, you know, this sort of like chill hip hop, uh, lo-fi hip hop, right. Uh, where they're, where they're they're like, you know, basically sourcing, you know, really, you know, going from any moving from anything that was formally, uh, commercially released to, to direct, you know, we're dealing directly with very independent artists who are not, you know, effectively not publishing their work um, in, in a way in which uh, a rights organization like BMI or sound exchange works with them or cares, uh, you know, but, and, and, and using YouTube effectively because it's free uh, to, to host yeah, and popular, and, you know, and, and, popular. And, and, and popular, right. Uh, and, and of course, popularity is, is, is another one of those tensions that we talked about. And, and, that's the other strain I, I'd like to, you know, be, in a few minutes, you know, I think that we have left that, that people's patience are with us uh, right now um, is, is, you know, the the fact of, of not worrying about popularity so much as being concerned with with doing that good work, the work that you think is worth doing and worth sharing and letting, well, yeah, that's a very, and letting popularity a, follow if it will. It's a very important consideration for anyone who loves community radio. Or the or kinds of podcasts, art. yes, the kinds of podcasts that we care about. That uh, you know, if I mean, I'll just go out and say it, right? If, if Radio Survivor, uh, if we started off our project here, episode number two hundred fifty-five, and set ourselves uh, a popularity goal, we would have quit. <laughs> yeah, at a certain stage years ago, when we realized that that the that the subject matter wasn't popular enough, no matter how important it, it was to everyone who works on the show. Or to the hundreds of listeners who do care about the about the episodes that we produce, uh, but yeah, so it's knowing knowing your own values and and using that to guide you, as opposed to the the metrics, the other yeah. metrics that are driving things well, these and, days. Is, and that even came up following in our conversation, our recent conversation with Carl Malamud. Right, uh, who produced uh, what is arguably one of the very first, if not the first, uh, regular internet radio talk show, as well as a proto podcast in 1993. You know, he kind of had a sense for how popular what he was doing was, but it wasn't foremost in his mind. And and he really, you know, he said pretty much outright, uh, you know, he did it because he could and because he felt it needed to be done. Whether it was, you know, figuring a way to wire up you know, the Capitol building in Washington to, to, to webcast uh, hearings live with a press club in Washington and to do this work, you know, he felt it just, it, it was important and needed to be done. Uh, popularity, you know, it was, it was nice to, to get a little popularity, I think, and it helped him sometimes get some funding, but it wasn't foremost in his mind. It, and, 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 well, you know, sure. and it was C-SPAN delightful. C-SPAN is important because it's important, not right. because it has high ratings. Right. And and what was delightful to me is just ahead of us interviewing uh, Kenneth Goldsmith here, you know, he, he I just, you know, was do the usual confirmation email. He wrote back that he just listened to the Carl Malamud episode. He's, and he was like, it's delightful. How did I not know about this? And mm-hmm. and I knew immediately. It's like, I, I figured Kenneth is, is a kindred soul. And, and, and that is in part why we do this is we, 
is every time you know Jennifer uncovers an archive that we didn't know about or someone's archival efforts, whether it's uh, for the radio stations at, at historically uh, black colleges and universities, or you know the hip hop uh, radio archive, or or you know various community radio, or we know our, our friend Chuck uh, Wrench in, in Seattle who is arc you know single handedly yeah. archiving uh, the community radio station. Uh, crab k r a b which which no longer exists right uh, but was but, but is monumental in the history of community radio um, every time we, we we learn about this it is just a, a thousand synapses just explode in our brains, and we know that that may not be true for many people, but for the people for whom it does <laughs> you know right. it, it 's fantastic and amazing. What's one of the things that Kenneth's interview today reminded me of and that I've brought up a number of times on our 250-something episodes is this uh, experience that I had you know, years ago loving podcasts for longer than than podcasts were. Um, I mean, to me, for me, I've, I was never the first person to love a podcast, but I, I was there in the early days uh, caring about episodes of the sh- of shows that were being put out you know, in 2012, let's say, uh, before 2012. And it's been a very uh, unique experience to find that some of those shows have not been permanently archived by their creators. Uh, or they're gone. are no longer available uh, for free. I mean, right. and, and, you know, it's as... Uh, well, that's another... I, well, that's I another see it, and, I, and of course, I work, for, I mean, I work for a company that has a premium service in which uh, yeah. after a certain period, some some portion of of a show's archives go behind a, a paywall and you know for those creators it, it's 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 an important source of of revenue uh, you know yeah. especially for shows where you're not talking about you know your million your millions upon millions of downloads so i'm very sympathetic to that side and and also you know i'll note and i don't think i'll get in trouble for this that you know prior to it going behind a paywall they're free to download and you can keep them as long yeah. as you like you can have them on your hard drive at home <laughs> right and and that's you know uh, and who knows where we'll be in 10 or 15 years or you know what the situation will be but if there's if uh, there might be an episode that that's very meaningful for you and has real you know life or historical importance and, and hold on to it and and it's essentially you know what, what we were talking about and, and what, what Kenneth brought up in, in terms of this sort of folk archiving or folk, folk curation, right? Is you know we we each sort of do this, and 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 sometimes it goes from being um, a garden path and, and haphazard to being something where you you kind of pick an area, right? Like hip hop, uh, you know, radio shows. Um, yes, good good example. You, you pick Hello, an area, Kevin McMichael, and, and then you right McMichael. Oh my gosh, God, we need to, we need to bring him back. I know, um, yeah. uh, and really find out where it's gone. Right, we need to check up on these things, and 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 you know, and you you know, like someone who who collects uh, science fiction pulp novels, or or a particular uh, uh, type of comic book, or or you know, or you know, music collections. Right, I think we could do the same now in this digital sort of way, which 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 Kenneth uh, Goldsmith leads. I'm sure he's not the only one, um, but. You know, Ooh. but in creating his his website, he 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 shares uh, that curatorial instinct and 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 you know and, and acknowledges how how it also develops and it changes and it morphs over time. I think I mean you know, it's sort of what we do here at Radio Survivor, whereas you know we're certainly creating it ourselves, but what we're trying to do is share um, knowledge of of these enterprises 
uh, of all sorts and, 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 and with the people who, who created them or, or have been or are, 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 are collecting them in a way that we hope has some, has some persistence um, as well with and, and what I hope and I think I think is happening because we've, we've done the website for, for 10 years, um, 11 years now. We've done this this podcast for five years, and we 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 really never celebrated it on the show. But we we hit our five year anniversary in in June of twenty twenty, and there's been a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I know it, it's fine, it's great, and there's a lot going on. But you know, and we do we reference our own show all the time, and well, I think it's great, and we always try to put it in show notes so you understand. There we're building threads and we're building connections, and if we're yeah. not yet able to we haven't yet had the time or ability to kind of sit down and make a page that connects them all at least uh the one you're listening to now will will help draw the connections to to previous <laughs> ones for you but yeah and, and one of the reasons i do reference my our own show all the time and this is this is like a um another reason to evangelize the project of podcasting even when it's not popular is that uh by caring about something in the niche by, by, and talking to so many individuals, um, you know, I reference things that, that are, that I'm reminded of outside of radio survivor, but the, the unique thing about talking to people every week on these topics is that, um, they don't just remind me of a YouTube I watched. They always remind me of a conversation we just had. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the conversation today with, with Kenneth about Ubu web really reminded me of the conversation that we had with, um, I'm going to look it up now so I don't screw up and not remember the guest's name for the second time. Like I did in the, uh, it's hard to have that encyclopedic knowledge. Uh, you know, normally <laughs> you know, Jocelyn, if, if, it was Jocelyn Robinson, you know, yes. Jocelyn Robinson who was on talking about, uh, their project to archive historically black colleges and universities talked about this, unique transition that we've made from the 20th century to the 21st century where uh people were not their own folk archivists uh back in the 1960s in the way that everybody everybody is does carry around an archive of their life now either on their laptop computer or on hard drives um and it's uh it's a really interesting uh new world and uh you know, we certainly at Radio Survivor appreciate the, the the folk archivists of the 20th century, since they were forward thinking and and have kept a copy of things that we care about. Uh, you Goodness. know, that's oh boy, yeah. that's every episode. You know, it is, it is, and it, and because I think what once you start dipping your toe in, you realize that um, it's wide and deep, and um, and how much there is to be remembered and preserved. Uh, and, and and once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Once you know it, you can't unknow it. And that's why we continue to traverse. And I think, I mean, and it seems to me that that we're not alone as we continuously learn. And, you know, every so often um, it, it bubbles up into the sort of more mainstream recognition, such as the um, the woman who recorded all the Philadelphia television that, that Kenneth uh, yeah. referenced, right? And you, yeah, that, that's a moment. And um, yeah, it, it it's... You know, I, I like how this allows us to sort of how, what Kenneth has allowed us to do in sort of a way that's a bit more 
it's just slightly academic. I don't, <laughs> but but you know, it puts a bit of things to to, to both uh, pithy summation um, and to a little bit of theory, if you will, uh, and I mean that with a small t. Um, and, and, and it is very helpful. It was very helpful for me in reading the book, uh, to have a fresh perspective, fresh eyes on, on the work that I see other people doing and that we we often get a chance to engage with. And, that, and to some extent I'd like to do more. Um, you know, I just need to, I guess, reserve, um, those three hours a night with a nice, nice glass of <laughs> bourbon. It's one way, um, one way to get I mean, things done. I, I, you know, I, it's the thing is I, I, I lament my youth, uh, I lament the loss of my youth. Because that was a time when I had uh, far more energy, I think. Not necessarily time, just the, the the impulsive energy to stay up for four hours a night to just make things on the internet or make things on my computer. Uh, and, you know, as, as somebody who is who is uh, fast approaching the, the half-century mark, um, you know, it just <laughs> it becomes more difficult. Yeah, so my hat's off to, to Kenneth, uh, who can do that. What have you, what have you found on UbuWeb that... That you were excited to oh my see. Goodness, I mean the works found. of John Oswald, uh, Plunder Phonics. Um, right, Plunder Phonics. Tell us again about Plunder Phonics. Plunder Phonics um, is very original. One of the original sort of well-known examples of of culture jamming, but really, you know, collagist reappropriation uh, of sound, and and a time where we take the notion for granted where everything is remixed right, and that's wonderful. Way. I mean, you know, so that that's not the old guy yelling at clouds. Um, I, I think it's great. Uh, but at a time when, you know, in the eighties, when, when sampling technology did almost didn't exist, he would do it with tapes or he would do it by uh, messing with CDs, you know, and create, created remixes ostensibly of, uh, you know, that were more, uh, about an avant-garde art than making something for the dance floor, right? Uh, Michael Jackson, and and he and he would get sued in the process, right? <laughs> or he would mm-hmm. get takedown notices. I think his 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 works were um, at one point were you know taken and 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 destroyed uh, based upon uh, probably Epic Records of the estate of Michael Jackson. Uh, at that time, Michael Jackson was alive, um, so not his estate, but uh, you know. It was real kind of reactionary clampdowns on this sort of thing, but it's certainly somebody a contemporary of, though different than, say, a negative land, um, you know, and as well, they're the works of the Tape Beatles, uh, an Iowa City-based kind of collagist uh, band as well, uh, like Negative Land, uh, working a lot in the same way in the 80s and the 90s. Again, often, you know, not not using um, even reel-to-reel tapes, but just, you know, what they could dub between two cassettes, Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and maybe a way that a lot of uh, I know I made such things that I no longer have access to. Like I don't uh, as a 12 or 13 year old that I, I will not uh, claim have any of the the, the cleverness or, or merit of, of the tape Beatles or, or John Oswald. But, you know, the impulse is there. Uh, what they did was to 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 hone their craft and, and do more of it and then had the gumption to distribute it right to other people uh, in, in, in pre-internet days, you know, on cassettes and in some cases records and CDs. Um, so that's all up there um, and, and can be accessed. And, and much of it is still uh, pretty amazing in the way they, they sort of uh, screw up, uh, you know, and mess with the, the timbre yeah. and, and, and things. And so, th- and that's, that's a, and, and, and because John Oswald's work, you know, early work was, was, was actively suppressed, Right. Um, it was 
for a long time, hard to obtain or hear. And it would pop up and down on the internet through the 90s, you know, and I remember being very excited to find it. But as soon as it would sort of pop up, it seemed it would it would disappear. And sometimes maybe it disappeared simply because somebody lost interest in that website, you know, uh, not because it was formally suppressed, but but it just it became harder and harder to obtain. It. And, and UbiWeb has been a sort of persistent archive of that at the very least. It's, it's something which, which I'm very much to... comes to my top of my mind. I'm excited to, you know, I asked my partner, what would you like to watch on this UbuWeb thing? And, you know, it, there looks like there's a lot of, um, you know, when we were in college in Olympia, Washington in the 90s, we were able to study uh, uh, this uh, Japanese avant-garde dance form called Buto that was, mm. that came up out of the 1960s culture in Japan and then traveled, you know, to Europe and to the United States. And, uh, there, it looks like there's a lot of films yeah. that are available on Ubu Web, uh, you know, documenting the, both the history of Buto and some some dance performances. So that's what I'll be digging into as soon as you and I. Uh, it's the kind of things I remember having to, to go to, like, uh, you know, an underground, so called underground. Literally, you've seen them in the basement screenings where somebody, you know, right. rigged up a 16 millimeter projector or, uh, you know, had a had a third or fourth generation uh video cassette uh, with a projector you know just because you weren't otherwise uh stuff you would you just weren't going to see um that is effectively and as kenneth mentioned you know now he understands that there are people who who use you know uber web as a source to have these things and be able to to share them in in a more when we in a live shared uh simultaneous uh, circumstance. So um, we certainly encourage you to check out Ubu Web. Uh, it, you, it, what's interesting is is it Google will find it for you, but it will find nothing else. Meaning <laughs> we'll have links, right. of course, in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Um, and, uh, you, uh, but uh, it will find the or very what? top level page, but that's all it will find. Right. I think, yeah, I think we didn't manage to define that but what what that is all about is that uh, the works themselves you'll, they won't if you're googling the works that are on UbuWeb they're not going to if you want to find them you're going to have to look at UbuWeb itself yeah. right there's this but there's a search engine there's a search uh, field on UbuWeb that works just fine in computers uh, you know in networking often you know we've talked about and I we certain I certainly used to practice as well uh, something called security through obscurity Right. Mm-hmm. If if it's not easily found, it's more secure than something that is easily found, and um, you know because so many web platforms or whatever thing you might use makes itself announces itself and yells its presence to the world by default, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it makes it and, and Google and search engines are so efficient now; it makes it very easy for someone to find something maybe you don't want them to find, except for the fact that Google will obey you if you ask it not to search your site. Yeah. Um, we used to do this. I mean, in, in, when I was in uh, university uh, digital media uh, more in the early days, and then we would sort of have some ma- classroom materials um, that a professor wanted to share online that it was a gray area, whether we could or not. And because there weren't yet these built out hardcore kind of uh, academic 
you know, online platforms. Uh, we just make a web. We make a website that wasn't easy to find, and just hand it over to the professors. Like, and then you know, at the end of the semester, we'll take it down. And eventually, we had to be you know, through all for all sorts of reasons, we had to be more stealthy, uh, and eventually uh, develop uh, more uh, rigid standards. Unfortunately, but there was a time in which you know we could just say hey, it's not findable really. So for the for the ten weeks of the of the semester, twelve weeks of the semester, it's just there. And then just do us a favor and take it. Down. We'll take it down <laughs> when we're done. Um, you know, not because we're trying. We really intended to violate anyone's copyright. And very often it was this very sort of work that would have been on Ubu Web. Things that came yeah. out of somebody's, some professor's personal VHS collection that we digitized, and that was, you know, that they had possibly bought or traded with somebody while, you know, on on a research exchange <laughs> in a faraway land. You know, um, but that formally, you know, we, we had to, we had to, we had to watch out about. Well, it's still possible. Um, is all we're really saying. And and again, you have to you have to be less invested in your popularity than in the um, the ability to simply do it uh, and and share with those who are intrepid enough or in the know enough to to find it. So uh, I think we can uh, wrap it up there. We've you know I hope uh, we've added some extra <laughs> context to this and at least uh, helped share. Um, you know, some of our, our absolute joy and, and delight in, in, in learning more about projects like UberWeb and, and talking with uh, folks like uh, Kenneth uh, Goldsmith or, or Jocelyn Robinson or Carl, Carl Malamud uh, on and on. And also, I mean, my, my great hope, uh, and I've mentioned it on another podcast that we've recorded this year, is that uh, there will be more folk archivists out there, uh, people who hold on to collections of things that matter to them. Uh, collections that are only important to the people in their city or uh, to to their particular uh, group of friends, but um, you know, you know, keep keep a copy and uh, and and maybe after keeping that copy for a decade or so, you start to understand the value of the copy you've kept, and it's time to. To, to to share the archive. And if you're if you're if you're on that next step, please let us know. Drop us a yeah. line. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. I'm starting to wonder if I should uh you know when when does the when do the hoarder instincts that it caused me to keep episodes of podcasts that I liked uh fifteen years ago, when when does that hoarder instinct uh, turn its corner towards uh folk archivist it's a uh, whole nother podcast. <laughs> thank you. To, thank, thanks, Kenneth Goldsmith. Thanks, uh, Paul Reese-Mandel uh, for doing the work today for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.